Are you gonna, am I going to introduce you, Michael? Michael should come up. We could both intro him. You could pray for him. Should we just pray for him quickly? Are you going to introduce yourself? Yes. So independent. Well, that says a lot, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, can we just pray for you? Yeah. Lord, we pray that you bless Michael. Thank you for all that he does at SPS. Thank you for the things that he leads, not just looking after our site, but Lord, the gym project. And in so many ways, as he has fed and sown into our church community over the years, we just pray you bless him now as he speaks. May what you have given to him reach our hearts now. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, I'm going to use two. No, I'm going <laughs> to get Dave to come up and read the Bible, which is why I'm taking this one. Um, yeah, you can take that. Thanks so much. Thanks, Mark. Dave, yes, please. Well, good morning, church. Hello, everyone. Uh, thanks for that lovely welcome. Um, Dave Wollaston has agreed to read our scripture this morning from Matthew 9. Thank you so much. And it will be on the screens if you'd like to read along. Morning, everyone. Okay, so this is Matthew chapter 9. Verse 9, as Jesus went out from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told Matthew, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what it means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And then we're just gonna skip forward a little bit to verse 18. While he was saying this, a synagogue leader came and knelt before him and said, my daughter has just died but come and put your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and went with him and so did his disciples. Just then, a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, if I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. When Jesus entered the synagogue leader's house and saw an, the noisy crowd and people playing pipes, he said, go away. The girl is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand and she got up. News of this spread all through the region. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks so much, Dave. Appreciate it. I'm going to just put this over here. Wonderful. Let me just pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for all that we can learn. And we just go before you now and ask that you bless uh, the reading of your word. And as we unpack it together, speak to us, Father. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, it's lovely to be here this morning. Some of you might not have seen me before. I don't preach all the time here at SPS. But I've been a member of the team for four years, five years, I forget exactly how long. It's been a wee while. 
And there's a couple of things you need to know about me. Number one is I cannot stay still. I've checked. I'm just going to check. This is still on the camera. This is still on the camera. So I will do my best. I know it's a little bit distracting. I've been told that really powerful, strong speakers own the stage and they stand in one place. But I just have too much energy. So I'll do my best, but I, I can't make any promises. And also, I'm a big old nerd, and I'm, I'm not embarrassed to say it. I love being a nerd. Love the Bible, love learning more stuff about it. I have taken out so many things from this preach, which you would have fallen asleep during. <laughs> oh my goodness. Uh, and you know, it's, it's painful for me, because I get so excited about nerdy things. But there may still be a couple of nerdy bits in there, a few nuggets. Um, so don't fall asleep on me. So Matthew 9, incredible scripture this morning. And we're going to look at, unsurprisingly, three points together. And um, I like to try to, to summarize my, my preaching into one sentence wherever possible. So this is the sentence. Jesus calls everyone into a partnership of faith, which is fully transformative. Jesus calls everyone into a partnership of faith, which is fully transformative. So those are the three points. Calls everyone, partnership of faith, fully transformative. The first point that Jesus calls everyone is a bit longer. We're going to do a bit of background and looking at the scripture. And then the second one and the third one, we're going to smash through those really quick. So first of all, Jesus calls everyone. We're going to look at the three people in these scriptures that Dave read so well, thank you so much, and look at the kind of people that they are, and the kind of ways that they were called, and what we can learn from those. Now, we see in Matthew 9, uh, the first reading that Matthew is sitting at tax collector's booth. We know that he's a tax collector, and we know probably, those of us who've been in church for a little while, some, uh, quite a lot about tax collectors, but I, like I said... I'm a real nerd, and I went and did a deep dive on the tax collectors in the ancient uh, Jewish society, and like I read the Mishnah and the Talmud, and I went like deep into Jewish, Jewish uh, history. It was fast, fascinating. I did take out all of the quotes, <laughs> but tax collectors, they were people who were subordinate to the Romans. They weren't in charge of the contracts. They worked for the Romans. And the taxes in those days, they didn't pay for infrastructure and education and social welfare. They just went straight to the Romans. They, wasn't, they weren't improving the areas that they were working in. And there was a huge number of taxes as well. There was income tax, export tax, there was bridge tolls, road tolls, town dues, poll tax. There was an incredible number of taxes that they had to pay. And it wasn't like your tax came out of your paycheck or if you're self-employed, you do an end-of-year tax self-assessment. You could just get shaken down wherever, on the street, in your home, in your business. Tax collectors would come and they would harass you. And also, they didn't keep records. One tax collector could shake you down the same day as another tax collector could come and shake you down. So you would be paying through the nose. And, of course, the taxes were inflated by the tax collectors. We know that from a lot of other scriptures. They were taking a cut, getting really wealthy. So the tax collectors were despised. They were social outcasts because of the corruption, because of the tactics. They were viewed as traitorous to their people because they were of the people that 
the area was. So Matthew was a Jew and he was taxing other Jews. They were robbing them for their own benefit and for the benefit of the occupying uh, Romans. They were seen, this is actually straight from the Talmud, uh, they were seen in many ways in the same way as murderers and robbers. So when you read it, it, it puts them in the same category. They were disqualified from being witnesses in court. They were social outcasts. They were disgraces to their family. They were excommunicated from the synagogue. They couldn't go into the synagogue to worship. They were not allowed to exchange money at the temple treasury. And this one thing I'm going to go into a little bit. This was fascinating to me when I read it. Um, you were permitted in Jewish society to lie by any means to not pay your taxes to the tax collectors. How does that sound? If you got accosted by a tax collector, you could tell them that what you have is put aside for God, even if it isn't. You could tell them that it was for the king, even if it wasn't. The Mishnah, uh, the area of the Mishnah is the Nedarim. It's the bit that talks about vows and keeping promises. It says, one may vow in such a case, although he has no intention that his words be true, using every means of taking a vow in order to mislead those people. Any way you can lie, lie. Because these people were so socially outcast, they were so dishonest that it wasn't seen as dishonest because you shouldn't be paying that money anyway. So the tax collectors, Matthew, they're dishonest, they're deplorable. You can say anything to get out of paying them. Uh, but despite all this, and slightly because of this, the tax skimming and everything else, tax collectors were still in some ways wealthy and well-to-do. Whilst they were socially outcast, they had their own kind of cliques, their own kind of social circles, and they were still not the lowest parts of society. So that's Matthew. He's a social outcast, but he's wealthy, he's financially comfortable, he doesn't necessarily have a physical affliction or a family member in need, but Jesus calls him. We saw that. And the, this, these three stories are actually in all of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In Luke 5, we see that it says that Matthew left everything he had and followed Jesus. It doesn't say that in the Matthew account because Matthew's like, he likes to be really short and to the point. But Luke has a bit more detail. What about the synagogue leader? What can we learn about the synagogue leader? Well, again, from the other two accounts, we find them in Mark 5 and Luke 8. We know that the synagogue leader is Jairus. Uh, he's named in the other accounts. And... He was a leader of the synagogue. Synagogues in those days had potentially multiple leaders. We read about that in Acts 13. And the synagogue was a local center of worship. Okay, Jairus was probably a lay person, elected as one of the leaders. He was responsible, and the synagogue was responsible for all kinds of things. I've written them down here. They're responsible for supervising worship services, caring for the scrolls, the, the, the texts running the school, keeping the congregation faithful to the law, distributing alms to the poor, administering the care of the building, that sounds familiar, and finding rabbis to teach on the Sabbath. So the leader of the local synagogue had great authority. Okay, he's a position of influence in the community. But Jairus knelt before Jesus. He humbled himself. He showed courtesy because his need was urgent. Of course, he was also a father, a father in anguish. His only daughter, we read in Luke, was dying. Uh, yet, he had faith that Jesus was the man that could help him. So we have the rich man who is a social outcast. We have the 
socially powerful man, and we have the woman who's been suffering with bleeding for 12 years. We know, we know from Leviticus 15 that if you're to be spiritually, ritually clean in order to go into the synagogue, and you have to not be bleeding. That's one of the areas. Because a lot of the Old Testament laws, they were designed to keep the ancient Jews away from death and disease so that they wouldn't die themselves. So to be spiritually clean and ritually clean, you, if you were bleeding, you couldn't go into the temple. Um, she shouldn't really have even been in the crowd because if anyone touches someone who's bleeding, they're meant to go home, wash themselves, and they won't be clean until the end of the day. They wash their clothes as well. We know from Mark 5, 26, again, one of the other accounts of this story in the other Gospels, that she's seen loads of doctors, spent all of her money, is basically destitute, but has no cure. So she can't worship in the synagogue. She can't have a normal social life. She can't be around people, and she is completely destitute financially. Three very different people in different circumstances. But we see that Jesus calls everyone. He calls them all. The wealthy, the outcast, the sinner, the leader, the person who is nowhere left to turn. Sometimes our world seems, I don't know, to me, like it's obsessed with identity politics. People finding who they are, not in what they stand for, but what they stand against. Not in what they believe, but what they don't believe. And it seems these days, especially with social media and everything else, that the court of public opinion wants to know where you stand on every, every subject as quickly as possible because I want to know if you're with us or if you're with them. Okay, is there, yeah, a few nods. Yeah, it feels like that, doesn't it? I mean, you have not to get too into the weeds with examples, but you have, you know, beer companies suddenly becoming political mouthpieces because they have to take a stance on every issue. And then, oh, well, they don't agree with me. I'm in this camp. I can't drink that beer anymore, etc., uh, etc. Et and this kind of dichotomy view of black and white and hero and villain and them versus us, it denies the nuance, the beauty sometimes the ugliness of the world that we live in, okay? The world is not so simple. And I think this dichotomy view, this black or white view, it really is quite a childlike idea. Um, some of you will know Natasha. Hello, give a wave. My wife and I have a, a two and a half year old daughter, Eve. She's wonderful. But she recently went through a phase of saying, I don't like blue, it's not my favorite. Or, I don't like that food, it's not my favorite. I don't like that friend, they're not my favorite. And sometimes also, I don't like you, daddy. You're not my favorite. Um, thanks, sympathy. It's true though, she does say that. Um, she seems to have this idea that, you know, she can only like one thing, one color, one friend, one parent, one friend. Well, I already said that. Um, but it's, you know, we're trying to teach her that the world is much more generous than that. You can like more than one thing. Yes, you can have a favorite, but it doesn't mean you have to dislike the other things. Sometimes as adults, we need to remember that. People are complex. The issues facing our world are complex. Both require nuance, conversation, patience, grace. And it's true also in the three stories we see here, you know. 
Matthew and the woman and Jairus, they're people. They're complex. The issues they face in society, the tax, etc., they're complex. Okay? You could say, oh, Matthew is simply an irredeemable sinner. Jairus is just a person in authority. Of course he got some time with Jesus. Of course Jesus came to him. The woman didn't really have faith. It was just her last resort. No, 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 no. People are complex. Jesus shows us that everyone is called. In fact, there is no us and them. We are all children of God, created in God's image. John 1 verse 12 says that those that believe in Jesus' name have the right to become children of God. And in that amazing opening few lines of the prayer for the Ephesians in Ephesians 3, it says, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Every family has the right to derive its name from God. We're all called. So be encouraged. This is the end of the first point, and don't worry, the last two are shorter. <laughs> you are called as you sit here today, as you listen to these scriptures. God is calling you to follow him because of Jesus. Also, be challenged. That person with whom you probably find it the most difficult to relate, you know, we live in a polarizing world. It's easy to fall into that trap. I just can't understand how someone could believe that. They are equally called by God through Jesus. So be encouraged and be challenged. Jesus calls everyone into a partnership of faith. So if Jesus calls us, what are we called into? Called into a partnership of faith. We read in Matthew 9, 18, the, the passage where Jairus, the synagogue leader, is asking for Jesus to come, put his hand on his daughter so she might be raised back to life. It says this in verse 18, while he was saying this, a synagogue leader came and knelt before him and said, my daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. Some really interesting parallels here to the chapter beforehand, chapter 8, where the centurion comes to Jesus who has a paralyzed servant. And he says to Jesus, I'll read it in fact, he says, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. Just say the word. Jesus is amazed in Matthew 8 at the faith of the centurion. And he heals the centurion's servant with a word. And then just a chapter later, Jairus comes and says, will you come and heal my daughter? Put your hand. Jesus doesn't say, oh, Jairus, ye of little faith. Don't you know I can say a word and heal your daughter and raise your daughter? No. He gets up and goes with Jairus. Whatever size of step we take towards God through Jesus. Jesus makes up the difference. It might seem objectively like maybe it's a slightly smaller step to say, please come and touch my daughter to heal her than to say, say the word. But it's a step of faith of any size. God honors it and steps towards us. Now, this is where I'm going to potentially reveal I'm from a tiny town in rural Scotland, and nobody in this room has any idea what I'm talking about. But I'm going to try it anyway, because I live in hope that one person will know. 
I was speaking to Mark yesterday, and I said, when you were young and you would play a team sport in like school or whatever in the playground, how would you choose who picks first? Because we had this thing, and I tried to explain it. Actually, come up, Mark, please. Uh, we had this thing. It doesn't make any sense, and it's impossible to describe. And if you're listening on the podcast later, I apologize. It's quite visual. So two people stand quite far from each other. So shout out if you recognize this, anyone who's into football especially. And they take it in turns to take steps towards one another. No, total sea of blank faces. I love this. Yes. What's it called? I don't know. Okay. But one person, it's a Celtic thing. It's a Celtic thing. So we take it in turns to take steps towards each other. And the last person that makes this, the distance, right, gets to pick first. I don't know why we did it. But you t it was very tactical. Nathan, you come up with me. Yeah, yeah, come on, don't be shy. Come on, yeah, come on, yeah. Give him a round of applause. Oh. So it's very tactical. You step towards each other, and you can take tiny steps or big steps. I'll go first, here we go. Oh, I think, can I make that? So uh, now I'm like, can I make that distance? And if I can, I get to pick first, but if I, I'll just do Oh! I should have measured his legs before I let him come up here. Really good, well done. So he gets to pick first, he gets all the good players, and I'm left with the losers. Just kidding, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> I was the one picked last. I wasn't picking any teams. Um, so the point is, and there is a point, honestly, whatever size of step we take, Jesus is capable, able. He has the leg length to make up the distance. Whatever it is. A few weeks ago, Mark, who's just up here, thanks Mark for that first initial, he preached on Luke 15, the prodigal son, that incredible image of the father looking for the son while he's still a long way off, he sees the son coming, and he runs to him. The son took that initial step of faith to come back to the father, thinking, maybe he'll forgive me, maybe I'll be restored, I'll be his servant, I'll be able to eat something other than the pig's leftovers, and the father runs to meet him. And he forgives him more fully and restores him more fully than he ever could have hoped or imagined. A beautiful image. And it's just that. We step towards God in faith and God walks with us in faith. It's an active partnership of faith. Okay? We don't step in faith towards God and he's like, oh, there you are. Okay, do what you like. Or he's, he comes to us and he journeys with us. So we are called. Everyone is called. Jesus calls everyone into a partnership of faith, which is fully transformative. So, last point, like I said, we're getting there. Last point, fully transformative. I just want to briefly touch on just a few of the ways that people in these scriptures are transformed. So we see immediate transformation. Matthew, tax collector, all the stuff we already discussed about, sinner, um, you know, blah, 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 immediately leaves everything he has and follows Jesus. And not only that, but then immediately invites all his friends, an inner circle, to meet with Jesus. So transformed that he immediately wants to invite others into that same transformation. We also see long-term transformation. Matthew goes from being the tax collector to a disciple, to an apostle, to, write, to writing the gospel that we're reading from today. Long-term transformation. Physical and emotional transformation we see. We see the incredible miracles of physical healing, restoration of both the woman with the bleeding and Jairus' daughter brought back to life. 
And in Mark's account of the woman being healed in Mark 5, we're told that she felt that she had been freed from her suffering. She felt emotionally restored and transformed. There's also, and this is a lovely little takeaway, not if I do say so myself, as a relational and positional transformation. Jesus says to the woman who's been suffering with bleeding, take heart, daughter. Her step of faith towards Jesus welcomes her into God's family, a daughter. The transformative nature of God in these areas, these kinds of transformations are available to you and to me, okay? These are all areas of our lives that God can transform. And I want to touch on one a wee bit longer, spiritual transformation. Now, we know that both of the healing stories in Matthew 9 would have technically made Jesus ritually unclean, according to the Old Testament laws. In Leviticus 15, as we already discussed, if someone touched the woman who was bleeding, they'd have to go home, wash their clothes, wash themselves, and they'd be clean again in the evening. It's in Numbers 19.11 that we read, and it's short, so I'll read it out. Whoever touches a human corpse will be unclean for seven days. They must purify themselves with water on the third day and on the seventh day, then they will be clean. But of course, Jesus didn't become spiritually unclean. Those that were healed became spiritually pure and clean like him, a spiritual transformation. This is the gospel. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, do not think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus didn't become unclean because Jesus is God. Jesus is holy. He is the burning coal that we read about in Isaiah 6 that touches Isaiah's lips and makes him holy. He transforms things and makes them holy like him. Through him, we can be spiritually transformed and made holy in God's sight. Jesus calls everyone. He calls you, he calls me to step forward in faith, to partner with him in faith. It's an active partnership. You move towards what God has and he moves towards you. And it's a fully transformative relationship. One last uh, simile, as it were, before I finish. When I was young, I, I remember uh, really vividly this picture that was given in a preach about faith. And the preacher said, faith is like jumping off a you might have heard this one, jumping off a diving board into an empty swimming pool and trusting that God is going to fill it on the way down. Anyone ever heard that before? No? Well, it was quite, it was quite the thing where I was from. <laughs> I, I heard it quite a few times. Maybe it was just that guy's thing. Um, but I like to think, I like to make it more true for me and also more less pithy, <laughs> which is my thing. Um, and say, Faith is like jumping off a diving board into an empty pool, knowing that God is going to fill it, but not necessarily knowing what he's going to fill it with, okay? You might be expecting water, it might be custard, okay? But whatever it's filled with is what God has for you, and what is right for you, and what is good for you, and what is going to bring you on that journey of faith, that partnership. So I don't know what you're going to be jumping into when you step forward with faith, but I know that whatever it is, God is with you every step of the way. He is immeasurably more able to make up the distance than we ever imagine. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to do it slowly so the band can come up. 
seamlessly. Pray with me. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you what we can learn from your word. We thank you, Father, that you call each and every one of us. You call us and you call everyone that we're in contact with to take that step of faith. We thank you for what Jesus did, that he lived so that we might live, that he died and rose again so that we might come to you and have a partnership of faith, a partnership in which we know that you will fill the pool, but we are excited to see what you have for us. We thank you that it is transformative. We thank you that we can be transformed immediately, but also that some transformations take our whole life, and that's okay because you're with us. Father, I just pray right now in this room that those who want to seek you, Father, would step towards you, that they would ask you to journey with them in faith, a step of any size towards you is met by you. You rejoice when we come to you, Father. We thank you that you transform us and that you enable us to tell others about that transformation so that they might in turn be transformed. We praise you for what you've done in this place and what you are doing. I thank you for what you are doing in the lives of these people here. And I ask for more, Lord, that you might increase, that we might decrease. Praise you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.